and welcome back to Cinema Sunday. I am your host, Candy Thomas, and each week I'm going to watch one of the 94 movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture and tell you exactly what I think of them. I'm going to follow the same template every darn week. The basic details of the movie, things like who's in it, what's it all about, and I'm going to answer three important questions. One, does it stand the test of time? Two, is it Oscar worthy? Three, should you watch it or does it stink like three-week-old garbage? Just as a friendly reminder, along with my honest assessment of these movies, you're going to get my hot takes on many current events, I like to rant about things that upset me, and I mix it with a heaping dose of adult language, so please be sure to listen with caution. Simply put, if you don't like fussing and cussing, this might not be your podcast. Before we begin, I would like to thank Wikipedia and IMDb, as they are great sources of information for all things movie and Oscar related. And with that, let's take it away. This week's Oscar-winning film is The Godfather. It was released March 24th, 1972. It was directed by Francis Ford Coppola. It stars Marlon Brando, Al Pacino, James Caan, Robert Duvall, Diane Keaton, and about a dozen or so really great supporting actors. It was nominated for a total of 11 Oscars, and it won three. It won for Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Adapted Screenplay. If you want to watch it, I can usually tell you where it can be found. But to be honest, I really couldn't find any place where it's available for free unless you have cable that is provided by Spectrum. But even then, I'm not sure that that's the real version or if it's edited for TV. Sadly, I think you're probably going to have to pay. It's $2.99 on Amazon Prime, Vudu or Redbox, or it's $3.99 on Apple TV. So what's it about? It is set in New York City from 1945 to 1955. Vito Corleone, played by Marlon Brando, is a well-known and much-feared leader of a notorious crime family. He's what they call the Don, which is basically the boss in the mafia world. The movie begins with the wedding of Vito's daughter, Connie. During the reception, we see several visitors paying their respects to him, not being able to really disguise that, in truth, they're really there to ask him for favors. Vito is very well connected. He has made inroads with the local union leaders, politicians, and police. He's able to continue his family's illegal business dealings because he's bribed or bullied the right people. He's owed favors, or in some cases, he's got the dirt to blackmail those who don't cooperate. And if needed, he'll act with brutal force even sending his head kneecapper, Luca Brazzi, in to kick a little ass and threaten some lives. Simply put, Don Corleone does not take no for an answer. The wedding scene allows us to meet the entire Corleone family. There's the well-intentioned but hot-headed firstborn son named Sonny, played by James Caan, hapless and somewhat troublesome second son, Fredo, played by John Cazali, youngest son, and the only one officially not part of the family business, named Michael, who's played by Al Pacino, and daughter Connie, played by Talia Shire. Now, you know her. She went on to play Adrian, the long-suffering wife in about three dozen different Rocky movies. 
We also meet Tom Hagen, played by Robert Duvall, who's not an official family member, but he's a trusted advisor known as the consigliere, the mafia's version of the elder statesman or right-hand man. His role is largely to represent Vito's interests in meetings and legal matters. Michael, a former Marine, has brought his lovely new girlfriend, Kay Adams, to the wedding. She's played by Diane Keaton. And we see Michael spending most of the reception explaining to her the nature of his father's business and his relationships with all the scary-looking dudes at the party. To be honest, she doesn't really seem phased. Not at all, in fact. She seems kind of fascinated with the power of it all. And I'm sure she's probably compartmentalizing. She knows that Michael is a hero just returning from war and is nothing to do with the family business. So she probably, very naively, thinks the two of them can keep the mafia stuff at arm's length, putting their fingers in their ears, doing the proverbial, la, 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 we can't hear you, to help them pretend it's not happening. But neither of them seem to realize right now, in this very moment, how easy it's going to be for Michael to get sucked into the family turmoil and what he will become because of it. We first get to see Don Corleone flex his muscle on behalf of Johnny Fontaine. Johnny is a popular singer who also happens to be Vito's godson. Johnny is dying to star in an upcoming big blockbuster movie, but the studio head Jack Waltz won't hear of it. So Vito sends Tom Hagen out to Hollywood to talk some sense into this stubborn movie maker, and Tom's got his work cut out for him. He tells Waltz simply, They expect him to cast Johnny in the movie. And Waltz isn't a guy to be bullied. He literally says, Johnny Fontaine ain't ever going to be in that movie. I don't care how many Dago Guinea Wop Greaseball Goombas come out of the woodwork. To which Tom replies, I'm actually (laughs) German-Irish. But we see Waltz have a quick change of heart when he wakes up the next morning with the head of his beloved horse alongside him in bed. Suddenly, Johnny Fontaine looks pretty freaking good for that role. This scene demonstrates for us early into the movie that Vito Corleone is accustomed to getting his way, period. Fast forward to winter, right before Christmas, when a local drug kingpin, Virgil Salazzo, tries to get Vito to invest in his narcotics business. He knows that Vito has the financial capital to give him the boost he needs, but it would also come with protection from the law, seeing how Vito has an in with members of the local police force. Vito declines, not because it wouldn't be a gigantic moneymaker, but he's worried that getting into the narcotics game would be one step too far. He's currently dealing in booze, gambling, and prostitutes, but being tied to the drug trade would alienate his political relationships and end up damaging his credibility with the people he most relies on for favors. This will end up being a decision that alters the trajectory for the entire Corleone family. While Vito doesn't want to be part of the action, he's also not too keen on Salazzo being in partnership with any of the other four major New York crime families, largely because he doesn't want anyone becoming more powerful than him. He knows Salazzo is working with the Tataglia family, so he sends his loyal enforcer, Luca Brazzi, in to meet with the Tataglias and see if he can score some intel. Vito thinks if he can send in Luca, acting as if he's dissatisfied with being Vito's main muscle and he's looking to make a change, the Tataglias will welcome Luca into the fold and tell him all of their deepest, darkest secrets. 
That will be another decision that doesn't work well for the family, more specifically, Luca Brazzi. But the Tataglias are just getting started. They catch Vito out in public unarmed with no other bodyguard than his idiot son, Fredo. They proceed to spray the place with bullets and leave him for dead in the street. They also kidnap Tom Hagen, Vito's consigliere, knowing he'll be the voice of reason in Vito's absence. With Vito in the hospital barely clinging to life, his oldest boy, Sonny, is now in command of the family business. Sonny isn't exactly what you'd consider a peacemaker. Oh, no. He's more the type that will bring every single one of those fuckers down or he's going to die trying. Tom Hagen is released, but it's basically on the condition of like, we'll let you go, but you need to go convince Sonny to calm down and accept Salazzo's narcotics deal or else more harm is going to come to your family. And Hagen is always the one who's trying to find some type of reasonable accommodation. So he's like, of course, advocating for a peaceful partnership. Like maybe we should consider this and stop the bloodshed. But that's when they are formed that Luca Brazzi sleeps with the fishes. So Sonny Corleone fires the first shot back and orders a hit on Bruno Tataglia. Michael Corleone is beside himself when he finds out his father is in the hospital, very close to death. He rushes to see him only to discover that the bodyguards who were supposed to be protecting him have been run off by police officers who happen to be on Salazzo's payroll, which leaves Vito a sitting duck. Michael manages to move his father, hiding him in another part of the hospital while he arranges for more protection to arrive. The police on scene are none too thrilled with Michael's ability to thwart a second attempted hit on Vito, and he takes a beating from the corrupt police captain named Mark McCluskey. Yeah, he's a real tough guy, this cop. It's like five against one, dumb piece of shit. Realizing they don't want to go to war after all, Salazzo and Captain McCluskey request a meeting with Michael. They still need the Corleones to support Salazzo's narcotics business. And the whole idea of, we'll just keep killing your family members until you say yes, isn't turning out to be a winning business strategy. Michael's still not part of the family business. He's just a regular civilian who, on the surface, doesn't appear to have his brother's psychotic tendencies. So they're hoping they can work with him to settle the dispute. But as we suspected would happen, Michael Corleone is about to throw his hat in the ring. He agrees to meet with them all right, right smack dab in the middle of the meeting. He executes both of them. Come on, folks. Michael Corleone does not screw around. But he's killed a cop. So it's time to get the fuck up out of there and head to Sicily to hide out for a while. His brother Fredo is sent to Las Vegas, where he is to be looked after by a Corleone family business partner named Mo Green. Sonny isn't going anywhere. He and the other four major crime families are going to battle it out in the streets of New York. Michael goes to Sicily, and he appears to be living quite peacefully. He seems to have forgotten all about Kay, the delightful girlfriend he ghosted back in New York, because he's cozying up to a very beautiful young Sicilian woman named Apollonia. They fall in love, they get married, and then she gets killed with a car bomb that was clearly meant for him. Meanwhile, back home, Connie Corleone, I swear to God, nothing can go right for this family. Connie Corleone, who we saw in Wedded Bliss at the beginning of the movie, has sadly become a victim of domestic abuse. Her brother, Sonny, steps in and beats the crap out of her husband, Carlo, and threatens to kill him if he ever lays another hand on her. And guess what? He lays another hand on her. 
In a fit of rage, Sonny races to Connie's home to what I'm guessing is to kill her husband. But on the way, he's ambushed and murdered by gangsters as he's sitting at a highway toll booth. Because he's devastated by Sonny's death and frankly exhausted by all of the fighting, a now fully recovered Vito Corleone sets a meeting between the five families to broker a truce. He's assured them that he won't stand in the way of their narcotics business and he won't take revenge for Sonny's murder. He also manages to secure a guarantee that Michael can safely return home and join the family business. Michael returns to New York and somehow manages to patch things up with Kay. It's as if they picked up right where they left off. They get married and soon after have two children. With Vito being near the end of his life and older brother Fredo being too much of a loser to be in position of leadership, Michael assumes the position at the head of the Corleone family. And while passing the torch, Vito makes Michael aware of a few important things. One, The hit on Sonny was ordered by Emilio Barzini, the head of the second most powerful crime family in New York behind the Corleones. Barzini was also in the narcotics business with Salazzo, and although he has pretended to be at peace with Vito, he has been secretly approving all of Salazzo's plans to rid the world of the Corleone family. Two, Barzini has also managed to infiltrate the Corleones' inner circle. One of their own trusted men is secretly working for Barzini. They aren't quite sure, but there's definitely a traitor in their midst. And three, even though Vito has done his best to secure a truce and stop the fighting, he knows full well that if Barzini sees an opportunity to take out Michael Corleone, he's going to do it. Michael needs to watch his back, or as Whoopi Goldberg said so eloquently in the movie Ghost, you in danger, girl. It's at his father's funeral that Michael discovers who the traitor is in his organization, and he decides it's time to step up and establish himself once and for all as the leader of the top crime family in New York. I won't give the ending away, but let me just say, Michael Corleone is a vindictive son of a bitch, and he makes it very clear that he's here and he's in charge. Question one, does the Godfather stand the test of time? In many ways, yes. Yes, it does. The story of crime families battling it out to gain power in their city is a tale as old as time, and it's almost always an enjoyable watch. Even if you're not so comfortable with violence and death, everyone still has a certain hunger for vengeance, and you want to see the people who tried to kill our protagonist dealt with in the most excruciating way possible. And by the way, it's not like Vito Corleone is a good guy. No, he's a cruel and violent monster. But he really was just trying to coexist at this point in the story. And they came after him. He was just minding his own business, just buying some fruit. And these dudes tried to execute him. What's really incredible about this movie, and keep in mind, I've never seen it before. But because it's such a cultural phenomenon, I knew many of the more infamous scenes and the quotable quotes. So it really has built this life of its own. 50 years later, I'm watching it for the first time and I can't help but get like a sense of deja vu because I've heard so much about it. And the things I was prepared for, the horse situation, Luca Brazzi sleeping with the fishes, leave the gun, take the cannolis. And of course, I'll make him an offer he can't refuse. That all happens in like the first 45 minutes of the movie. So there's two hours left to go. And I'm thinking, well, damn, what's going to happen now? I was so invested in the 
outcome. It's the vengeance. I wanted the vengeance. I just keep watching, knowing it's going to escalate and these bastards are going to be sorry they ever fucked with the Corleones. There's an element here I want to talk about real quick too, because I think it's really well portrayed in this movie. And that is the big brother effect. Connie Corleone has had the privilege, and and I did too, of growing up with big brothers who you know are always going to look out for you. If you grew up with brothers, especially if they are big brothers, not just older, but if they've got some size to them, you get to spend the better part of your childhood walking around feeling invincible because everyone knows damn well that you have big brothers. I don't know personally if my brothers ever had to fight any of my battles for me, probably because all I'd have to say is, touch me and my brothers will kick your ass and it was over before it started. And like all families, you can pick on each other and you can start shit with each other, but heaven help anyone outside the family who tries to hurt you. That is simply unacceptable. And Connie Corleone has this privilege. She doesn't have to sick her brother on people. She doesn't have to say a word. You see it in the scene where Sonny notices her face is bruised and he goes from zero to 400 in about a half a second. There's no way he's going to let any effing piece of shit lay a hand on his sister. And when it happens the second time, Connie calls her brother, not the police, not her best friend, not a neighbor. She calls her big brother, and later we see her brother Michael finish what Sonny had started. I know people watching this would probably say, ah, it's an Italian family thing, but trust me, I'm not Italian. It's a big brother thing, and it's fantastic. This year, The Godfather celebrated its 50th anniversary with a return to theaters for a short run last spring. It continues to maintain a strong fan following and cult-like status. It's been named to many top movie lists, including it's number two overall on the American Film Institute's list of 100 years, 100 movies. It's also a number 11 on their 100 years, 100 thrills list. And it's number two on their list of the 100 best movie quotes with, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. In case you're wondering, because I was, so I looked it up. The number one rated movie quote of the last 100 years is, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn from Gone with the Wind. Question two, is it Oscar worthy? Yes. And to be honest, I'm a little surprised it only won three Oscars. For some reason, I believed it had been more like Titanic where it just swept up everything. But that wasn't the case. It was nominated for 11, and I can see why. The music, the costumes, the set design, it's all very well done, and it looks really authentic. The other movies nominated that year were Cabaret, Deliverance, The Emigrants, and Sounder. And of these, I too would have voted for The Godfather. I think it's the best of the group. Cabaret is very good, and the music is something I still listen to today. I would bet that this movie and the music got a little bit of a recent resurgence when it became a plot line in the TV show Schitt's Creek. If you didn't watch that show, they did a wonderful little small town presentation of Cabaret, and it's really quite delightful. Deliverance is a well done but very disturbing survival story. It's bold and a little bit creepy, so I could see where Oscar voters would be intrigued. Interesting side note, Burt Reynolds, who famously stars in Deliverance, was originally offered the role of Michael Corleone in The Godfather, 
but Marlon Brando threatened to quit if Reynolds was hired, so he turned it down. Marlon Brando won for Best Actor, but he famously boycotted the ceremony that year in protest of Hollywood's treatment of Native Americans. His award was accepted by activist Sachin Littlefeather, who he'd sent in his place. James Caan, Robert Duvall, and Al Pacino were all nominated in the Best Supporting Actor category, but they all lost to Joel Grey for Cabaret. Coincidentally, Al Pacino also boycotted the ceremony that year. He was upset that he'd had far more screen time than Brando, yet only got a Best Supporting Actor nomination. Question three, should you watch it? Yes, I'm a little pissed off at myself that I didn't watch it sooner. It's really fantastic storytelling, the characters are authentic, and it's extraordinarily well cast. It was made 50 years ago, so you're seeing James Caan, Robert Duvall, and Diane Keaton as 20-somethings, right? I didn't even recognize Diane Keaton when she came on screen. They are all young and attractive and vivacious. It's like you've stepped into a time machine. And never once in my adult life do I ever recall thinking Al Pacino was sexy, but in this movie... He's sexy, especially when he shows up in his Marine uniform. Oh, wow. It's a richly woven tale. You meet all the characters early on, and it lays the foundation. Then you just follow them through the next 10 years of family drama. You never get bored. And there's never any part of the story that seems less important than another. You can't help but be intrigued by all the moving parts. There's a lot of minor characters, so it can get a little bit confusing as to who's with who or what family, but it never leaves you behind. Everything that happens serves a purpose. It drives the story forward. There's never anything put in just to fill time. Everything has meaning and it flows very well. Again, it's made in 1972, so don't go into it expecting 90 mile per hour car crashes or fancy CGI. It's as simple as one guy uses a handgun to shoot another guy and that guy falls down in the street. It's, it's, you're not, you're not seeing it for those parts. It's a character driven crime story. Every person in it gives a top notch acting performance. And I, I'm going to say it, especially James Caan. I think he's particularly good at playing hot headed, ham fisted macho dudes. And this is no exception. Funny side note, I recently was watching one of those kind of behind the scenes, here's how they made this movie special. And it was about the movie Elf. And they're interviewing the actors and crew and everyone's kind of sort of telling this same story, how they were all sort of scared of working with James Caan because he'd gotten this reputation for being a bully or a tough guy because he'd built a career on playing these types of characters. And here he is being cast in this Christmas comedy, a Will Ferrell movie, no less. It's truly one of those situations where someone gets typecast as a brutish thug and everyone starts to think that's how they really are. And he turns out to be this hilarious and warm and genuine guy. And everyone was completely gobsmacked by him. By the way, it's holiday season. Go watch Elf. It never disappoints. And finally, one of the best parts about The Godfather is that there's a part two, which is great because this one really left me hanging. There are a lot of unanswered questions that I'm going to need to get to the bottom of. And it sounds like everyone universally agrees that part two 
is even better than part one. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 11 of Cinema Sunday. I'll be back next week to discuss another Oscar-winning film. Please tell your friends about this podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can like, follow, subscribe, and even post a review. If you have a comment, maybe I got some facts wrong, or you just want to tell me I have shit taste, you can email cinemasunday at yahoo.com. The music for Cinema Sunday is appropriately titled So Happy. It is by Scott Holmes Music. I got it off of freemusicarchives.org. And the work is licensed under Creative Commons by NC 4.0. Links are provided in the bio. And if you happen to visit the Free Music Archive, they do take donations. So please be generous. Thanks and see you next week.